Certainly we'll cover more scripture this morning than we can really go line by line. But our goal is to help you better understand the unfolding of redemptive history. So that as you live your life now, you can fit your life, your reality, your goals, your hopes, your expectations within God's big story. Instead of trying to live your own little story and turning your little story into the big story. It doesn't work that way. In the meantime, trust in God's goodness. Trust in His faithfulness. Trust in His love and His mercy. He does have a plan for all this. He does give us enough enough of why He does things. Enough to trust Him and to live. When we get to Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. Notice the plural. We switch to the plural. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, God was already the ruler of everything, so this dominion he wants us to have is a delegated dominion. To the glory of God, according to the gifts and talents he's given us, according to the way creation is designed, and according to his revealed will, his rules, his boundaries, I want you to fill the earth and have dominion to the glory of God. And I still am that kid that keeps asking why. Well, why? Well, why? Well, at some point it's because it's what he said to do. And when we get busy doing the thing God's called us to do, I, I don't know about you, but I feel really satisfied and I sleep well at night. I worked hard to the glory of God and I used the gifts He's given me and I didn't squander my talents. It's good, it's satisfying, it's refreshing. When God reveals Himself to us as a Father, on some level, humanly, I can understand that when my children, I have dominion and my wife have dominion over our house and our little acre and a quarter. But when our children grow and mature and use their gifts, and yesterday, boy, they were kind of having dominion on our, our property, and they did some painting and some weed whacking and gardening, and it was just great. Wow, look at them go. And they create things, and they build things, and they paint, and they make movies, which is really fun to watch the movies that they make. And it brings me satisfaction. And on some level, we can understand that's what God's revealing to us, is He delights in us. Go, create, plan, hypothesize, test, organize, collaborate, build, fill the earth, build societies, but all to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. According to His revelation, He made man and woman in His image. And Genesis 2 said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a suitable helper. And... Marriage was created and defined. For this reason, Jesus, quoting from Genesis chapter 2, a man will leave his father 
and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That one flesh being a spiritual and emotional, definitely one flesh, but also a physical. It's the only way to fill the earth, multiply. God has ordained that this dominion will happen through the institution of marriage and family. Adam and Eve have children after the fall. But it was always part of the plan to be fruitful and multiply. Childbearing is not part of the fall. Pain in childbearing is, is part of the curse. But family is a good thing. It's God's designated way to fill the earth. Think of this. He could have just filled the earth with adults, fully formed, like Adam and Eve. But in his good wisdom, his beautiful act of the two coming to one and creating a whole new life, that's half you and half your spouse and half your traits and half her traits and wonderful. And all your children are a little bit different and have their own gifts and talents and quirks and sin orientations. <laughs> but it's part of his wonderful design. And so if you're asking, well, what's my purpose on earth? To glorify God through having dominion over the earth. At this point, though, I want to call a time out and make sure I warn you about this aberrant theology that's kind of been sweeping through evangelicalism since the turn of uh, the millennium. Since 2001, a group called the NAR, and I've mentioned this from the pulpit before, but they're not going away, so I better warn you again. And I'm putting so much emphasis on the dominion mandate that I don't want you to be confused with these preachers who preach what's called dominion theology. Dominion theology. The NAR stands for New Apostolic Reformation. They believe in 2001, God reinstated a new apostolic age and is designating certain people to become apostles and prophets. And that they are able to function in the same way that the original apostles function. They, they speak on par with Scripture. They, they do signs and wonders like the original apostles. And part of their teaching is that God has told them and revealed to them through prophecy that He wants the church to take over these seven mountains of society. And I didn't write them all down, but you could probably guess what the seven mountains are. You know, it's like politics, education, religion, and, and so on. Uh, the business realm. So it's these seven realms of society that we have got to aggressively take them back for Christ. Now, I wouldn't disagree with that. I would disagree that God has told us specifically that there's seven mountains and that we the, the way they go about trying to take those seven realms back, I would disagree with. But, yeah, let's get Christian politicians and Christian teachers and Christian principals and Christian governors and Christian... Everything would be wonderful. But they believe that once they accomplish this task, then and only then will Jesus come back and reign over this kingdom that we've built. And yet the New Testament and the Old Testament is clear that things are going to get much worse before Jesus comes back. In fact, he comes back because we've made a mess of everything. 
not because we've fixed everything. Men involved with this movement, the leader is C. Peter Wagner, who trained and used to teach at Full Earth Seminary just down in Pasadena. Dutch Sheets, Jack Deere, former Dallas Theological Seminary professor. They believe that in order to accomplish this task, first we must take dominion back from Satan, who took man's dominion from him in Genesis 3. Well, the way I read Genesis 3 is that man gave it to Satan. Satan didn't take it. Satan tempted. Man gave, gave up his authority. And so they've got this intricate system of trying to uh, subdue the entire, entire demonic realm. And they spend a lot of their time and resources doing strange spiritual warfare where they go from state to state, city to city, county to county, and they, they pray in these certain zones that they said God has revealed, this is where you need to pray, and this is where the demon of this or the demon of that has his headquarters, and we need to tear all those strongholds down. It's very elaborate. It takes a lot of manpower and a lot of money. So when you go on their homepage, the very first sermon you get is on tithing. That ought to worry you. When an organization who stands for Christ, the first thing they want you to know is how to give, not how to receive salvation. And that ought to be a red flag. But because of the confusion and anarchy that is going on in our world and even in our own country, and you're tempted to say, what is going on? And it's all falling apart, and it feels like it's slipping away. These teachers are very pop, becoming very popular in evangelicalism, and they're getting rich off this teaching. And so I want to warn you that when you hear them say dominion theology, don't say, oh, Pastor Brent was just teaching about how we're supposed to have dominion. I'm going to listen to this guy. If you have any trouble ever discerning a good teacher from a false teacher, make an appointment, come in and talk to a pastor, and we'll open the Bible, and we'll, we're not going to just tell you who's good and who's bad. We're going to look at the Scriptures together and look at what they say and match it with Scripture, and then you should be able to determine. You should be able to discern. So we'd love to help you with that. But just be on guard for the Dominion theology people. Why I warn you is because I know we get very political and we, we lean very conservative politically. And these teachers are in the realm of politics and they give lots of money to candidates that if I said their names from the pulpit, you would probably say, I really like that guy. I really like him. Well, you need to know that he's running for office because he's part of this Dominion theology movement and he, he wants to take office believing that um, we are going to usher in a new theocracy into America. That it's going to be a government, uh, God's government. Another term you might hear is theonomy, which is setting up a Christian political system in America and then bringing some form of the Mosaic law in as the law of the land. So be careful with that. However, the good, the good you want to take from this is that, yes, God has created us to have dominion over the earth to his glory. Use your gifts and talents. Subdue the earth. You heard the passage. Subdue the earth. Be a good steward of the earth. 
I wanted to, let me go to Genesis 3, and then I wanted to show you a passage from 2 Corinthians this morning. In Genesis 3, we understand that the fall came from man saying, I don't want to listen to God. Did God really say? That's the question. Did God reveal this to you? Is this truth? Is this how God wants you to define your reality? And Satan comes in as the deceiver and says, you ought to question God's revelation. You ought to determine for yourself and define your own reality. You ought to determine what is right and wrong. This is Satan's plan. And once, God, once man abandons God's revelation, we have to answer these questions. How did I get here? What's my purpose? What's going to happen when I die? And when you start answering those questions on your own, then you end up with a, a different worldview, a different philosophy, different ideas. And we're now living in a culture that is just steeped in these unbiblical views, and everything does seem to be falling apart because these views won't work. They can't work in the long run. God's not going to bless it, A, and B, because it's not based on reality, the whole system's going to crumble and collapse on itself. It can't carry its own weight. It seems that every time the world tries to solve one of our problems in our country, they create five more. Because the solution is never, well, let's get back to what God has revealed. A couple of weeks ago, in front of the Supreme Court, arguments were made whether or not we should change the definition of marriage. The conservative judges, who are either Christian or Catholic, asked the attorneys, should we be changing the definition of an institution that has been around for thousands of years, shared by every culture known the history of mankind? That's the right question to be asking. Should we really abandon God's definition of marriage? They had it right. The more liberal judges just kept asking this question. You need to prove to us what harm it would do if we change the definition. Because we don't see how it would be harming anything. These people, they want to get married. They want to raise children. They want to be happy. What harm is that? So their litmus test is, if it does no harm then why not? Their second litmus test is, is it fair to everybody? So it's like they never grew up from childhood where everything is not fair. And as long as I'm not hurting anyone, why, why you know, leave me alone? There's bigger questions and bigger answers. More important questions. In 2 Corinthians 10, if you can... Flip to the New Testament, Second Corinthians ten, three to six. I love that there's still the sound of flipping pages. But if you've got your iPhone or your iPad, that's okay too. Maybe you could program it to make a page flipping sound. Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, and he's not talking about our sin nature flesh, he's talking about our body, that we're human. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 
We are destroying speculation. So what are these fortresses? It's a metaphor for speculations. It's uh, logismas in the Greek. Ideas, philosophies. All these man-centered philosophies, worldview, ideas that are not according to God's revelation, that dominate and dictate the world that we live in. Paul's saying they're fortresses. The Greek word for fortress there is talking about a stone edifice that could be a, a building, a tower, a wall, or it could be a prison or a tomb. And these ungodly speculations are just that. They're, they're fortresses, but they're also prisons and tombs. They trap people. They, people think these ideas make them feel safe because it's the answers they want. And we see as redeemed Christians, oh no, no, you think that's happiness. That's not. That's going to lead to judgment, destruction, death, unhappiness. You think you feel safe because you've walled yourself off with your own ideas, but you've created a prison of your own making and you're miserable in your prison. And eventually, if we don't help you escape, your prison of your own ideas will become your own tomb. So sad when people come into counseling and they're just trapped in this tomb and they feel safe in there and they don't want out, but they're miserable. And you show them the way to freedom and, and they say, well, is there any other way? No. No. You've got to, you've got to do this God's way. It's the only way that's going to, to work. And so we're, we're tearing down speculations, and by helping you go through a biblical worldview or meta-narrative and understanding the whole Bible, you're going to have opportunities where people, these captives, come to you and they're miserable, whether they come to grief share or divorce care or making peace with your past or, or a co-worker who asks you for some help and they unload their burdens on you. You need to be able to remove and dismantle gently their fortress, brick by brick, and set them free. And when they start seeing that the Bible has answers for all their questions in life, and you can connect the dots, it's so powerful. So yes, you know the gospel, and you know enough to evangelize today. But you need to also make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything Christ has commanded. And so understanding the whole meta narrative is what we're after here we are tearing down these strongholds. And people don't like their strongholds torn down. Things have gotten to the place in our country where they've set up these, these fortresses and they said, we want you to just tolerate these fortresses and these worldviews. And now they're saying, now you have to live according... You have to be in this prison. You have to be in this tomb. It's not fair you're running around free out there. It's not fair all these happy Christians experiencing freedom in Christ. No, you must, you must come down into our pit with us. So you can run from them or you can engage the culture. And I think Christ would rather us engage the culture than run from it. Be careful, though, that you're not like Lot, where you think... You're not attracted to the culture. And you build your house near Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Not because you want to witness to it and evangelize it, but because you're attracted to the wicked city. So he says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what we're doing from the pulpit and what we're, we're training you to do. So you see Adam and Eve setting up their own lofty speculations against God according to Satan tempting them. You get to Genesis 4 and they have two sons. They have Cain and Abel and God institutes a sacrificial system to atone for sin. This is God's system to atone for sin so we can have a right relationship with God. And Abel says, I'm running with it. God is good. I'll bring my sacrifice. And Cain says... No, this is, I don't know what he said, but God was not, did not approve of the offering that he brought. And he says to Cain, who's rejected by God and depressed, why are you depressed, Cain? Do you not know that if you do what's right, it'll go well with you? God's dismantling his fortress. And Cain decides to double down on the bed and build his fortress stronger. And he ends up murdering his brother. So we see on the individual level with Adam and Eve what happens when man sets up his own worldview up and against God's. And then it gets passed on to their, their kids. And we have a, an example of Cain, what not to do, Abel, what to do. And by the way, things don't always turn out in the immediate for those who obey God. You know, Cain killed his brother. But Cain was cursed by God for all eternity for his disobedience. Abel, I think, will meet in heaven one day. In Genesis 5, we get these genealogies, and you're wondering, what are they doing there? Well, God in Genesis 3.15 promises through the seed of the woman, that he will bring a redeemer. Through the seed of the woman, he'll bring a redeemer, which is strange because women don't have seed, they have egg, man has seed, a foreshadowing of the virgin birth of Christ, no doubt. And I believe man and woman understood that the seed would be from their offspring, and when they had Cain and Abel, they feared, well, one of them must be this redeemer, one gets murdered and the other one gets banished for life. So, where's the seed? Well, that God gives them another child, Seth. And we see that the seed is now moving through the line of Seth. And that's why the genealogies are there, so we can trace the seed through Seth's line. And when we get to the end of Genesis 5, the seed is now in Noah. And the world's become exceedingly wicked and God is ready to judge the world He's going to flood the world, but he's not giving up on his rescue plan. And Noah found favor in the sight of God. And God's going to maintain that godly line, that seed, and he rescues Noah's family. To kind of restart the human race over again, because he still wants people to multiply, fill the earth, have dominion to the glory of God. And in fact, he repeats those words to Noah's family when they get off the ark. And they're like, all right, we're starting fresh this time, and Noah's great, and everything's going to go well. And Noah gets drunk. 
And one of his sons dishonors him. And it's all falling apart again. Noah finds out what happened, curses his son Ham and Ham's son Canaan, which is why eventually the Canaanites are cursed. We also see that Noah says Canaan's offspring will be a slave to Shem's offspring, whose Shem ends up being where the seed runs through. The seed of the Redeemer will run through Shem's line. Shem becomes the Shemitic people, the Semitic people, the Jewish people. See, when people start today and they're like, what is up with Israel and why, why all the hubbub about Israel? Because it's God's story and it's the way it's unfolding according to His plan. Israel makes sense in the context of the whole meta-narrative. Try to make sense of Israel outside of the Bible and there's just no reason that so many people would hate this tiny nation. And why this tiny nation would exist for as long as it has and enjoyed such great blessing and such horrible sorrow in its history. But in the meta-narrative, it makes, makes perfect sense. In Genesis 10, we get more genealogies because we're tracing the seed. In Genesis 11, humanity has grown again and they decide to disobey God's creation mandate again. They're building a city and building this great tower. They're having dominion. But they specifically say, let's, let's, let's build this tower really to show off how great humanity is. It's the world we live in today. There's no doubt that unbelievers do amazing things. That's no proof of whether or not you're a Christian. I remember hearing uh, John MacArthur once say his, his wife was in a horrible car accident. She broke her neck, was almost paralyzed, was going to die. And they were going to do surgery on her. And someone from the church said, well, is the surgeon a Christian? He says, I don't care. I just want the best. Unbelievers have amazing gifts from God. Sometimes they're more diligent at their job than believers. It shouldn't be this way, but sometimes that, that's a fact, unfortunately. Why'd you hire him, not somebody from the church? Because everyone knows he's the best at what he does. Now, he's not doing it to the glory of God, but ultimately, I want the job done right and done well. God, instead of punishing all of creation, because He promised He would never destroy all creation again through a flood, He confuses the languages of the people, so they're forced to abandon their building project and spread out. And it's why we have nations across the earth now in all the different languages. Now we get to Genesis 12, and we see that God is going to call a specific man out of all those nations to start a new nation, a special nation. And he says, I will be their God and they will be my people and I will give them my law. I'm going to bless them and protect them. And through that nation, I'm going to show the world the way I designed this whole humanity project to work. And through that nation, I'm going to bring this Redeemer who will ultimately show all of the world 
all of creation the way this project was supposed to work. Where the first man failed, the last man, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, will succeed. It's just a long process. Why? Because it's the way God decided to do it. Why so many generations? It's the way God decided to do it. I know that sounds a lot like when your kid keeps asking why, and at some point you say, because I said so. But there are questions that are so complicated that God, in His wisdom, it's not that He's incapable of explaining it to us. We're incapable of understanding. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that belong to us and our children, He's revealed these things to us. He's, He's given us plenty of why to move forward in life and glorify Him. It frustrates me when I meet people who say, I won't come to Christ or follow God until I have all my why questions answered. Well, then you'll be God, and you won't need to follow God. So in Genesis 12, God calls Abram to leave his, his land, and he introduces the covenant to him. And he brings his nephew Lot with him. We also see the story where he runs into some hostile forces and he lies and says that his wife is his sister because he figured they'd want to steal his wife by killing him. So even as corrupt as society is, there was still this understanding that you don't steal another man's, you don't take another man's wife, but you can kill him and then take her. This is, this is corrupt society, perverting and twisting God's revelation. So he lies and calls his wife his sister to save his, his, his neck. God tells the opposing forces through a vision that you are with another man's wife here and I'm going to curse your whole nation, your whole tribe. And so they, they give Abraham back his wife. In Genesis 14, on the heels of that story, Lot gets kidnapped. And Abram goes and rescues Lot. And part of that whole story, you meet this king priest named Melchizedek. And the story seems completely out of place. And you're like, what, who is this guy? Well, we find out later in the New Testament that he is a type of Christ because he's a king and a priest. God would separate those two offices in Israel's history, but when Jesus comes, he's our high king and our high priest. This meta narrative is constantly revealing to us Christ. In Genesis 15, we see the Abrahamic covenant again, and people get confused because they're like, okay, I thought he made the covenant in chapter 12, and then it's in 15, and then it's in 17, and then it's in chapter 18. Well, he introduces the covenant in chapter 12 and then ratifies the covenant through a ceremony. In chapter 15. In Genesis 16, at age 85, Abram and Sarai doubt God and devise a plan for Abram to have a child with 
Sarai's servant Hagar. You know the story. Now, you can understand why they would doubt. They're 85. And Abram's name means great father. Could you imagine your name means great father and you're 85 and you have no children? It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. But I think by God's design to humble Abraham and to glorify God that God would accomplish something that certainly Abram and Sarah have no earthly way of accomplishing on their own. They do end up having a child. They name him Ishmael, which means God hears because they thought that he was the answer to their prayers for a child. They were wrong. Say, well, now Ishmael is stuck with this name that doesn't make any sense. No, it is because later when they do have a son, Isaac, Sarah says, I'm in conflict now with Hagar. I want her out of the house. God tells Abram, go ahead and, and, and release Hagar out into the wilderness with Ishmael. They're about to die because they're only sent with one wineskin full of water. And she cries out to the Lord, and the Lord rescues her. God hears. Isn't that wonderful? God's amazing the way He sets all this up. In Genesis 17, finally at age 99, Abram and Sarah do have the child of promise, and God changes Abram's name, which used to be Great Father, to the father of many, Abraham. And Sarai's name is changed from My Princess to Sarah, mother of nations. And circumcision becomes the sign of the covenant. In Genesis 18, the story gets a little strange. God comes down with two angels and visits Abraham. You say, well, how can God come in, as a person, in the body of a, a person? And theologians call that a theophany. Because God in His glory cannot be seen by man and us live, God has to hide His glory in various ways if He's going to come down in a personal way. Since the fall in the garden, we cannot be face-to-face with God such as it were and live. So He comes down as this person. And Abraham recognizes that it's God and makes a meal for the three men. And again, God tells him, you are going to have this child. Sarah's going to have this child. And she laughs outside the tent. And God hears her laugh. So why did you laugh? And she says, I, I didn't. There's just nothing about these people that make me say great heroes of the faith. And yet God used them to be heroes of the faith. And it brings me great humility and great hope that God can still use somebody like me. If He can use Abraham and Sarah. He can use me. He can use you for His glory. And He says, no, you did laugh. And you are going to have a child. And I'm going to pick the name this time. And his name is going to be Isaac, which means he laughs. I'm going to remind you of your doubt your whole life. Every time you call your son's name, you'll be reminded that you scoffed at the idea of God giving you a baby at this age. But with, 
What is impossible for man, impossible for man is possible with God. So understand then that this covenant God makes with Abraham, there's four promises. A seed, which is Isaac, but ultimately is Christ. Land, which in its near fulfillment is the land of Canaan, where Israel is today, but that is not all the land they were promised. The promised land goes all the way to the river Euphrates, which is most of modern-day Iraq. So Israel has not inherited all the land that they have been promised. There are some theologians who say they got the land, the covenant's done, the church replaces Israel now. I don't believe that. Because again and again he says this is an everlasting covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. And Israel's still there and they don't have all the land yet. He promises them a great nation. The near fulfillment is the nation Israel. The ultimate fulfillment will be the great nation of all the elect. That's you and me. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. We sing the song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. And we say, so let's all praise the Lord, but maybe it'd be better to say, if you praise the Lord. If you trust in the Lord, then you are a son or daughter of Abraham. You are part of this great nation that he promised. Well, I'm not a Jew. I'm not part of the nation Israel. No, this bigger nation that he is making. Finally, he's promised them divine blessing and protection, both for Abraham and for Israel. And eventually, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham because the seed comes through Abraham, the Messiah, the Savior of all the nations. God is concerned for all the nations. The conditions of the covenant. What if Abraham doesn't make good on his part of the covenant? It doesn't matter. It's an unconditional covenant. It's unconditional in the sense that God will fulfill the four promises whether or not Abraham and the nation Israel are faithful. And aren't you thankful for that? And the new covenant God has made with us in Christ through His blood is also unconditional. Once we're in Christ and He's made that new covenant with us as believers, you cannot forfeit the covenant. Aren't you glad that you don't have to live a perfect life to keep your salvation? The Abrahamic covenant points to the new covenant, the better covenant we have with Jesus Christ. The covenant is only conditional in the sense that Israel and Abraham would experience temporary blessing according to their own covenant faithfulness. And you've experienced this too. In as much as you are faithful to obey God, you do experience divine blessing. And when you're unfaithful to your covenant with God, because He loves you, He brings discipline into your life. That's a good thing. I'm glad that we don't get blessing upon blessing when we disobey God's law. He brings His children back through discipline. Let me skip to the reasons then that God made this covenant. And I think you've got the answers now. I think you can answer these for yourself. Why did God make this covenant with Abraham? 
Number one, so he could fulfill his creation dominion mandate through mankind. He's not giving up on Genesis 1, 26 through 28. He said this is what's going to happen, and then man didn't really cooperate. So God's not going to give up on the plan. Otherwise, man usurps and thwarts God's will. Man can't thwart God's will for his creation. Secondly, he made this covenant so God could fulfill the rescue plan he promised in Genesis 3.15. I'm going to bring a seed. Well, where's the seed coming from? From through Abraham. There it is. And for everyone on this side of the cross, they knew they could trace from Abraham and know this seed is eventually coming from Abraham's line. Thirdly, so God could demonstrate his love, mercy, compassion, justice, sovereignty, and faithfulness. That's who he revealed himself to be, specifically to Moses when Moses asked, you know, who are you? And I put this passage there so you could see that God says, I am compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, and I keep my loving kindness for thousands who I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. By making this covenant with Abraham, he's able to demonstrate all that compassion and justice and sovereignty. And every time Abraham messes up, and every time Israel messes up, and every time you and I mess up, God has an opportunity to demonstrate his mercy and compassion and loving kindness. But he can't just turn a blind eye to disobedience and sin. And so he's going to bring this seed through Abraham's line, and he promises and makes covenant that I will bring this seed. And on that seed, God will pour out his wrath, the wrath we deserved. He will mete out his justice on Christ instead of on us. Why did God make this covenant with Abraham of all people? Why not? God gets to choose. Be okay with that. God gets to choose. He is God. He chooses. He elects. Was Abraham better than everyone else? No. It says Abraham obeyed God, believed God, and then it was credited to him as righteousness. Why did God choose you? Why did he choose me? Why am I standing here in this pulpit? Why are we Christians? Why did God make his new covenant and and let us be part of it? Why does he get to write the story? Because he's God. It's his prerogative. And I'd rather him write the story than me. That's as much as I know about myself. If I've learned anything from God, it's... He's the perfect one. I would mess everything up. I do. Finally, why did God make this covenant with Abraham so that he could exalt his son, Jesus? All of these issues we've talked about this morning all point to Christ and exalt Christ. He's the last Adam who will perfectly fulfill the creation mandate. He's the one who will have dominion perfectly. He's the real Noah. He's the real ark. Only in Him can we be saved from judgment. He's the real Abraham. He's the everlasting Father of all those who would believe in Him. 
He's the one who left his home and was a sojourner in the land of his wanderings. He's the real seed, not Isaac. Isaac's name is He Laughs. Jesus' name means God saves. Amen? That leaves me like two minutes for Sodom and Gomorrah, which is perfect. Perfect. By the way, sorry, church got started a little late this morning. I ended late this morning. I'm working on it. I need, need, need your grace. Thank you for your flexibility. The whole significance of Sodom and Gomorrah, I want you to focus less on that particular sin that makes us uncomfortable to talk about. It wasn't Sodom and Gomorrah's only sin. It's just become synonymous with that sin because of the word sodomite or sodomy. But Sodom and Gomorrah had become exceedingly wicked because they abandoned the revelation of God and instead ran forward having dominion on their own terms. And any time any of us do that, or a society, or a nation, all hell eventually breaks loose. And I mean that not tongue-in-cheek, literally. It becomes hell on earth. Satanically inspired hell on earth. This is what Sodom and Gomorrah had become. That particular sin is just one example of how bad things had gotten. But because Abram was pleading with God, will you spare this city if there's just 50 righteous people and then 40 righteous people and 35, 30, 25, 20, 10. The entire city had become corrupt. And so if you're so focused on that particular sin, what about the women and what about the young people? It couldn't have been the only sin that was going on in the city. It's meant to be a contrast. In fact, in Genesis 18 and 19, we get the contrast. God says, For I have chosen Abraham so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. There you go. Have dominion in his family by instructing them to keep the way of the Lord so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. All those blessings, all those promises. On the other hand, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. The whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah is there as a contrast. This is what God intends for humanity. This is what humanity looks like when they abandon God's revelation in His ways. And he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And every time Sodom and Gomorrah are brought up in the Bible after that, it's always as an example of humanity if God doesn't intervene. Humanity left to its own devices. So how do you teach this to your kids? That's exactly what you say to them is sin must be punished. And when you abandon God and His revelation Terrible things happen eventually. So much so that things God calls detestable, you will eventually call wonderful and beautiful. If we overemphasize that particular sin, A, we're going to blind ourselves to what 
Jerry Jenkins calls the more respectable sins. None of them are respectable to God. But we get so hyper-focused on this particular sin in our culture right now that we're going to end up turning a blind eye to our own sins, like greed, and pride, and self-righteousness. Yet, we can't ignore the fact that God does call that particular sin an abomination. Why is it an abomination to Him? Because it is so far removed from God's created order. You can't be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth through this. It's a perversion of God's created order and a perversion of the beauty of of marriage and the one flesh mandate. Secondly, in Romans 1, we read that the acceptance of this behavior is really just a symptom of a society that has already exchanged the truth of God for a lie and exchanged the worship of God for the worship of man. What does Paul say in Romans 1 once we abandon the truth and exchange it for a lie? He says, number one, God handed them over to sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Didn't we have a sexual revolution in this country in the 60s? Secondly, he'll hand them over to unnatural relations. So now they exchange natural relations for unnatural. That's where we find ourselves now. Thirdly, he hands them over then the society that abandons God's truth to a debased mind. You can't even think straight about right and wrong anymore. Those are those Supreme Court justices. Such an obvious question. Should we change the definition of an institution that is the building block of all societies for all time and all countries and all nations and all history. And all they can think to ask is, well, is it going to harm anyone? Because I know it's going to harm them if you don't let them marry that's going to have their feelings hurt. These are the highest court in the land, the wisest people we've chosen to judge over us. This is the best question they can ask. A debased mind, you can't find truth anymore. Then when you read in Romans 1, once there's a debased mind, literally all hell breaks loose. I'm not a prophet, but it seems we're headed in that direction unless God intervenes with a major revival. And He can. And we should pray for a revival. But beloved, be careful that we don't rail on this one particular sin as if that's the only sin out there. So thirdly, everyone is born with a sin nature that is oriented away from God. We talk about this sexual orientation. I have no doubt that they're oriented towards that kind of attraction. I'm oriented towards other kinds of sins. I have a sin nature. But God tells me I don't have to obey and listen to that orientation I can trust Him and say, even though I think that sin is going to bring me satisfaction and happiness and gratitude, God says, no. Say no to instant gratification for eternal satisfaction. Trust God. He's got much better for us. The born-again Christian is given a new nature oriented towards loving God by trusting and embracing God's definition of reality and morality, even if everything in you is screaming, but I want that. That's going to make me happy. That's the way I'm made. I can't help it. 
No. In Christ, you can help it. In Christ, you can turn. In Christ, you can choose correctly. Let me end with this. Nathan gave me this hat tip to Nathan. In Matthew 10, 11, Jesus says to the apostles when he's sending them out to preach the gospel, whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace because whoever does not receive you nor heed your words. What are their words? They're God's words. They're God's meta narrative, God's gospel, his good news. If they don't heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. As bad as Sodom and Gomorrah was, the take-home from that story is ultimately what is offensive to God is not heeding His words, not trusting Him as the revealer of all truth and all reality, trying to have dominion on your own terms and your own definitions. You can, you can teach your children that any day of the week, without being embarrassed to touch on a topic that's kind of touchy. With that said, you do need to talk to your children about that particular sin in the privacy of your own home. If you need help with that, you can call and make an appointment. I could walk you through that. Because if they don't find out from you, then they're going to find out from the world, and you don't want to let the world define how they should feel about that They need to hear not how God feels about it, but what God has said is true about it. Let's pray. Thank you for hanging in there a little bit longer today. Heavenly Father, revealer of all truth, thank you for your story so we know who we are and who you are, why things are happening the way they happen, and what's going to happen to us, and how we can be saved and how we can have hope, and how we can help others be rescued from these fortresses of lies and deception. First, humble our own hearts, Lord, and then encourage us in the gospel to go out and speak truth in love, helping to dismantle these fortresses, knocking down godless speculation, replacing it with truth. Set the captives free, God. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen.